This week, PG&E says Kincaid Fire could subject utility to significant liability. McDermott skips coupon entering grace period. Mallinckrodt announces exchange offer. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Mark Fisher. Later this episode, the Reorg Emerging Markets team will discuss Colombian airline operator Avianca, Mexican oil and gas conglomerate Pemex, and Brazilian cement producer Intercement. It's Sunday, November 10th. With the Kincaid Fire, the 2019 wildfire season's largest to date, now fully contained, attention last week turned to the resulting damages and their potential impact on competing planned constructs in the case of 500 damaged or destroyed structures in the utility service area during 2019 or 2020. Based on terminology used by the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, or CAL FIRE, and publicly available data, Reorg provided an analysis of the situation. As of CAL FIRE's most recent report, 434 structures were reported damaged or destroyed by the Kincaid Fire. Discussing the fire, the company stated in its 10Q filing last week that, quote, it is reasonably possible that they will incur a loss in connection with the 2019 Kincaid Fire, adding that, quote, the utility could be subject to significant liability in excess of insurance coverage that would be expected to have a material impact on PG&E corporations and the utility's financial condition, results of operations, liquidity, and cash flows, as well as on the bankruptcy timing and process and the ability of the utility to participate in the wildfire fund. The debtors also filed an amended and restated restructuring support agreement last week with support from the ad hoc group of subrogation claimants. Terms were largely consistent with the prior proposals besides the inclusion of provisions governing parties' rights under a, quote, insolvent plan. Insolvency was previously a trigger for termination of the support agreement. Under the new plan, debtors may file a revised plan that does not pay subrogation claimants, quote, $11 billion in cash on $11 billion of allowed claims, should Judge Dennis Montali determine debtors are insolvent. Accordingly, subrogation claimants, quote, shall be free to vote for or against such an insolvent plan in that event. At a status conference in the claims estimation proceeding, District Judge James Donato announced that he intends to consider the newly reassigned ratepayer challenge to AB 1054 on a, quote, similar time track with his estimation proceeding. The challenge had previously languished at the motion to dismiss stage. Plaintiffs allege that AB 1054 is an unwarranted, quote, bailout plan for shareholders and creditors to California utilities with irresponsible safety records. The CPUC and other defendants charged that AB 1054 was enacted to combat, quote, an immediate threat to communities and properties throughout the state from the risk of catastrophic utility-related wildfires. Returning to earnings, PG&E Corp. reported revenue increased 1.2% year-over-year in its third quarter, but adjusted EBITDA fell 16.3% over the same period. The company disclosed $90 million in Chapter 11 legal costs for the quarter and $191 million in legal costs year-to-date. On a hectic Monday for the beleaguered EPC&I firm, McDermott skipped a coupon on its 10 and 5-8 senior notes entering a 30-day grace period, and in its 10Q included, quote, going concern language that stated, quote, it may be compelled to file Chapter 11. According to the filing, quote, conditions to accessing the full funding and letter of credit 
availability under the super priority credit agreement have not been fully satisfied as of the date of this report. And we are in the early stages of seeking to obtain certain approvals from third parties that will be necessary to satisfy these conditions. The company also Monday reported third quarter revenue of 2.1 billion and new orders of 1.7 billion for a book to burn ratio of 0.78, a considerable slowdown from first and second quarter results. Third quarter adjusted EBITDA was negative 71 million, including 354 million in project charges, of which 256 million related to quote specified projects, which were partially offset by 33 million of favorable cost estimate changes. The company reported free cash flow of negative 146 million, a sequential and year-over-year improvement in, due, in part due to a 133 million working capital release. According to CEO David Dixon, the company's capital structure, quote, continues to be pressured by certain legacy CB&I projects. McDermott's results were also meaningfully below the projections published as part of the company's cleansing report released in connection with its new super priority credit agreement on October 21st. Free cash flow burn of $146 million for the quarter was $60 million wider than expected. Revenue was $171 million, or 7.5% below projections, and adjusted EBITDA loss was $29 million wider than forecast. In addition, new orders came in at $865 million, or 34.3% lower than expected. On a project-specific basis, the company recorded an $80 million net loss on Cameron, as expected, a slightly wider than forecast loss on Freeport, and $195 million in losses on other projects, as compared with $62 million anticipated in the financing case. Mallinckrodt announced exchange offers to swap its notes maturing between 2020 and 2025 into new second lien notes due 2025, with the company's 2020 notes offered consideration of $0.85 cents on the dollar, and later dated notes between 37 and 47 and a half cents on the dollar. In an 8K and offering memorandum for the proposed exchange offers, Mallinckrodt detailed an exchange agreement between it and a number of Deerfield entities person to which Deerfield agreed to exchange with the issuers on the settlement date of the exchange offers, separate from such exchange offers, their holdings of existing notes as follows. Approximately $67.6 million of aggregate principal amount of existing 4 and 7 eighths 2020 notes, Approximately $258.7 million aggregate principal amount of the existing 4 and 3 quarters 2023 notes. Approximately $98.5 million in aggregate principal amount of the existing 5 and 5 eighths 2023 notes. And approximately $75.2 million aggregate principal amount of the existing 5 and a half 2025 notes. The Deerfield held notes would be exchanged for approximately $227 million aggregate principal of new notes. Deerfield also agreed to consent to the proposed amendments with respect to all of such existing notes that are subject to the consent solicitations. In addition, under the exchange agreement, the issuers have granted an option to Deerfield, exercisable up to five times for 60 days after the date the exchange offers are consummated, to exchange any existing notes they may acquire after the execution of the exchange agreement for up to $100 million aggregate principal amount of additional new notes. Speaking on the ongoing opioid litigation, Mellencrot warned that potential outcomes, including a potential settlement, may make it necessary or advisable for the company or one or more of its subsidiaries to seek to restructure in a bankruptcy proceeding. The offering memorandum included in Mellencrot's 8K included the following language in regards to pending opioid lawsuits, quote, Further, such matters or the resolution thereof, whether through judicial process or settlement or otherwise, may make it necessary or advisable for Mallinckrodt and or one or more of its subsidiaries to seek to restructure it or their obligations in a bankruptcy proceeding. 
The operating memorandum adds, quote, The company is exploring a wide array of such potential outcomes as part of its contingency planning, including the impact such actions could have on its businesses and operations. Should a bankruptcy occur, Mallinckrodt would be subject to additional risk and uncertainties that could adversely affect the company's business prospects and ability to continue as a going concern. On the island of Puerto Rico, Governor Wanda Vasquez announced last Tuesday that she would submit legislation to establish additional limits on the issuance of public debt and restrictions on the usage of related proceeds. The administration bill, the first filed since Vasquez took office in August, echoes controls incorporated into the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment that was filed by the PROMESA Oversight Board in the Title III Court in late September, according to a copy of the bill released last week. The bill, the Debt Issuance Responsibility Act, would define the revenue and financing that would count against the Commonwealth's constitutional debt limit, establish that bond issuances could only be done to raise new money for capital works, and would cap new debt issuances at maturities of 30 years and refinancings would be allowed solely if interest rate savings are achieved. On Wednesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board set fiscal year 2021 general fund revenue projections for the proposed for purpose of budgeting at $9.6 billion and the, quote, other funds revenue at $3.4 billion in a letter sent to Vasquez and legislative leaders pursuant to Section 202 of PROMESA. The letter also provides a schedule for developing, submitting, approving, and certifying the uh, fiscal year 2021 budget. The current fiscal 2020 consolidated budget certified by the Oversight Board reaches $20.2 billion, including $9.1 billion in general fund spending, $3.6 billion in special revenue funds, and $7.6 billion in federal funds. In addition to complying with the revenue forecast provided in the letter, the Oversight Board said it expects the government's proposed budget submission due by the end of January to follow certain agency payroll and operating expenditure targets. U.S. House Democrats and Senate Republicans are continuing discussions on legislation to boost Medicaid spending on U.S. territories as they try to overcome differences in how Puerto Rico should be treated under the plan, with the Senate calling for about $2 billion less in funding over the next four years and requiring additional control and program integrity measures, according to Resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez. Meanwhile, a coalition of Puerto Rico business organizations issued a letter calling on the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee to hold a public hearing on the island regarding energy issues. The letter states that, quote, Congressional oversight is needed immediately and asks legislators to intervene and help renegotiate the proposed Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority restructuring deal. The announcement by the private sector coalition came as groups opposed to the PREPA deal are calling on Vasquez and legislative leaders to project the PREPA restructuring support agreement. Other top stories last week were Bumblebee prepares to file for Chapter 11 as soon as this week, Bolton Group, FCF Co., Briegel Partners, Lantern Capital submit stocking horse bids, GTT Communications lenders organize with Millbank, bondholders with Latham on foreign subsidiary guaranteed disagreement. Offshore drilling rig contractors point to signs of recovery, while Hornbeck grimly notes sluggish Gulf of Mexico recovery, competitive pressures, and investors' focus on contract duration. And now, as always, here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, thank you, Mark. Welcome one and all to the most interesting half hour in podcast land. And it's another busy week with the tail end of third quarter earnings and a packed legal calendar. 
Reckon ideas to get all the business done before we descend in the tryptophan haze of the day before Black Friday holiday in a few weeks. So anyways, Monday, November 11th, McDermott, the bells are tolling for thee, my friend, because you have a $40.74 million interest payment due on your 2025 term loan. Of course, last week, the company entered into a grace period relative to its 10 and a quarters, having elected to sit on the coupon while they engage in discussions with the people holding the note. They're also earnings from Cumulus with a call after the close. Tuesday, November 12th, early tender expiration in Rite Aid. Bunch of hearings including a confirmation for Sheridan Production Partners, an omnibus hearing in Alta Mesa, and in PG&E, which is a gift that more or less keeps on giving to people like myself who have a somewhat cynical view of human nature, there's a status conference. It's related to USA versus PGE, and well, here's hoping they both lose. And second day objections in Highland Capital. We also have earnings from GTT. That's a new name for us. Interestingly, a buddy of mine in the Netherlands, or one of those flattish northern European places, has a band called GTT. Not really for the faint of heart, so I'd caution you against a casual listen. Chaparral Energy, one of those mid-con names, has earnings along with Dean Foods, Hexion, and Northern, uh, beg your pardon, Northern Oil and Gas. Wednesday, November 13th, continued confirmation hearings in Emerge, a telephonic conference in Ontario versus Tiva, hmm, um, and in PG&E, there's a number of things, an RSA approval exit financing bar date extension hearing, and a CPUC voting meeting. And analysts, you'll be pleased to learn that there are no earnings today. Thursday, November 14th, final dip hearing for PES and Empire Generating, second day hearing in Destination Maternity, and earnings from Alpha Natural Resources, Conjura, and Talon Energy. And Friday, the 15th of November, there's an omnibus hearing in NSYS, continued confirmation hearing in Emerge, and earnings from JCPenney, Prada Plano, Texas, with an 8.30 a.m. conference call. So there's your overview, and for more, please look at our weekly calendar, which is released bright and early every Monday morning. And that is all from me. I'm now going to pass the microphone oh, microphone over to my friends and colleagues, Kala Wusu and Brandon Liu, and they're going to tell you all about some names we are following in emerging markets, which to me begs the question as to when exactly California will be transferred into that category. And while we're at it, I'd just like to offer my own thanksgiving to my folks who never went further west than Comanche County, Texas, when they went west about 100-odd years ago. And that's all from me. Take it away, Kyle and Brandon. I'm Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Debt Analyst and LATAM Team Lead, and I'm here with our Corporate Credit Analyst, Brandon Liu, to talk about Colombian airline operator Avianca, Mexican oil and gas conglomerate Pemex, and Brazilian cement producer Intercement, whose roughly 480 million senior bonds have declined from around the low 90s to the low 70s, mostly due to the company's exposure to Argentina. Um, so Brandon, I will pivot to you, and I know you're gonna be asking the questions, so let's uh, let's kick it off. Great, uh, so let's just start with the basics here. Uh, can you just talk about, tell us what Avianca does, and then walk us through the capital structure? Sure, so Avianca is an airline operator. Uh, the company's main markets are Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru. In Colombia, Avianca has a market share of around 52%. Um, the company reported a little under, so we'll call it three, three point four, a little under three and a half billion 
um, of, of bank loans, ECA guarant- and ECA guarantee debt, um, and then $550 million of eight and three-eighths um, senior unsecured bonds due 2020, as well as just under $240 million of pension benefit obligations. Um, depending on how you calculate EBITDA, what you add back, what you don't add back, uh, total leverage, we calculated, the way we calculated is uh, roughly eight times. Got it. And so why is this name kind of surfaced and what? why is it on your radar now? Sure. Avianca is on our radar now um, because of the se- a series of events that took place pretty rapidly, actually, over the spring and the summer. Uh, the company is still wrapping up transactions to address its capital structure. Um, but the transactions are really, it seemed, designed to buy time and not necessarily reduce debt. Uh, on April 10th, representatives from BRW, a, a subsidiary of Synergy Aerospace, which is controlled by Bolivian-born brothers and entrepreneurs Jose and Herman Efremovich and United Airlines, told Avianca that BRW was not in compliance with the collateral coverage ratio under a loan with United Airlines. Given that BRW pledged all of the shares that BRW owned in Avianca to United, the breach raised change of control concerns. On April 23rd, Banco de Bogota um, agreed to amend its 245 million credit facility with Avianca to address the potential change of control. And then on May 24th, United began exercising remedies against BRW. So uh, you had board members removed um, from Avianca replaced. Uh, there was a new CEO and, 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 and a new CFO. Both have been appointed. Um, and now United Airlines and another shareholder, Kingsland, have assumed control. On June 25th, Avianca unilaterally suspended payment on its aircraft operating lease and debt amortization payments. And then on July 22nd, Avianca launched an exchange offer for its 500 million bonds. Sorry, for its 550 million bonds due 2020. Got it. That's interesting. So how does the exchange offer work and how many bonds were tendered? So the way it works is the, the, the 550 million bonds would be exchanged for new 550 million bonds new 550 million, sorry, secured bonds due 2020. So you have the benefit of added security, but the maturity is, stays the same. Um, then if the 250 million investment from Kingsland and United materializes, the bonds are then exchanged for 550 million senior secured bonds at a 9% coupon due 2023. Since Kingsland and United have basically already announced uh, the two, a 250 million four-year pick loan secured by a pledge of stock in Avianca's major subsidiaries, which is expected to be offered um, Sorry, which investment is expected to be offered to shareholders um, in an amount up to 125 million to participate under similar conditions? Uh, we basically assume that you're swapping 550 million bonds due 2020 for 550 million senior secured 9% bonds due 2023. So you have a slight coupon bump, then you get the benefit of the added security. 88.1% of note holders participated in the offer. Participated in the offer. Got it. And yeah, I see. Um from what I recall, the Avianca was extending those ex, uh, tender deadlines for for quite a while to try to get uh, additional participation. But I guess uh, eighty eight point one was what percent participation was what they what they ended up with. Uh, so what what should the new twenty twenty three senior secured bondholders be concerned about? Let's let's break this up and and first start with the structural concerns. Sure. So. Uh, 
just, just over 85% of this capital structure is secured, um, according to the, the prospectus. And so there isn't a lot of unencumbered value here. Um, and yes, you are uh, now going from unsecured status to, to senior secured status, but you're effectively still um, pretty much behind all of the ECA and bank debt. And the reason I say that is because the collateral comprises uh, first priority um, security interest in holding company stock, the rights to residual aircraft, Eight unencumbered aircraft and IP. So, if you set inside, if you set aside the unencumbered aircraft and the IP, and just you know, look, start with the Holdco stock pledge. Um, basically, the that the the assets that the Holdco owns um, are a company called. Sorry, the asset I should say is a company called Intercontinental Equipment Corporation, and that company just owns um, all the issued and outstanding stock of entities that are entitled to receive residual value after payment of ECA financing arrangements. And similarly, the aircraft residual value pledge gives you a perfected security interest in the rights to residual aircraft value. Um, So in an enforcement scenario, the rights and, and the prospectus says this: the rights that, uh, to the of those entities to receive any residual value from aircraft is only available after the ECAs are paid down in full, and secured note holders don't don't have any right uh, or will not be able to exercise any control over decisions regarding that collateral. So, I mean, most of your collateral value is coming in the form of stock, and um, the 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 only assets that you that the the, the companies that issued the stock really. Own are these residual rights that only really kick in uh, after the debt that's ahead of you is paid down in full. So it's not like you have the security over over airlines or, or anything like that. Um, I mean, you just have essentially residual value, uh, again, setting aside the unencumbered aircraft. Also, uh, the prospectus says that the new indenture is not going to limit the amount or other obligations that may be secured by collateral, which sort of sort of gives me pause. Um, with that said, I don't know how much unencumbered value there really is, uh, especially with the Kingsland and United convertible loan. But um, the ability, I think, to 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 um, to layer bondholders uh, is is certainly present. Got it. That's that's some good color. And how about the, uh, any cash flow concerns? So um, the new CEO and I, I'm. I'm Apologize, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but Anko Vanderwerf um, said that available seat miles or available seat kilometers, I should say, sorry, are expected to decline in the near term along uh, with absolute revenue because the company is going to be uh, reducing its routes and and, and flying um, less, reducing the amount of unprofitable routes that it flies. Um, However, uh, revenue per available seat kilometer is expected to increase. So as the company exits uh, its unprofitable routes and lowers the available seat kilometers, um, but yields improve, so the the cash that it charges each passenger to fly, uh, as that goes up, the company expects revenue per available seat mile um, to also increase in turn. Um, So basically, the company's trying to to, to become more profitable on a per unit basis. Um, And however, though, the, the, the prospectus says that almost all all of Avianca's debt comes due before May 10th, 2023. And so 
the question is whether or not two to three years is really enough time um, for that kind of turnaround to happen. Uh, also, Avianca still needs to make the amortization payments that it delayed. So remember, like I said, um, Avianca unilaterally um, suspended payment. And so you have the company said $270 million that needs to be repaid over a 36-month period. There's a nine-month amortization holiday. So um, I think that's still being negotiated. So how that sort, sort, sort of shakes out is going to have ramifications for the bonds. Um, and then the company is going to have to address large advance payments and aircraft acquisition payments. Payments that come due ahead of the the, the 2023 bonds. Um, now, on the other hand, to sort of balance this out, like I mean, the company generated 180 around million of, of levered, um, sorry, around 180 million of LTM unlevered free cash flow as of June 30th, um, and also at around 50 million, Columbia's, Columbia's population is the third largest in Latin America, and the aviation business is, is very cyclical, and the World Bank is forecasting three and a half percent, three point seven percent, and three point seven percent GDP growth in 2019, 2020, and 2021. And so, um, you know, the, I think that the 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 macro backdrop for 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 the company's main market, where it has a market share of over fifty percent, is is pretty favorable going into twenty twenty three. So we'll just have to see how it shakes out. Got it. So so few headwinds, few t- few tailwinds for for the potential cash flow generation. Um, what are what are some of the next events that you're keeping an eye on? Uh, for for Avianca. So we're going to look for um, some 2020 guidance, hopefully on the company's third quarter earnings release and or call. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I'd like to see an update on the uh, progress regarding lender negotiations and as well as um, some more detail as to what specifically secures that Kingsland United loan. Are they going to share collateral with the new senior secured 2023 bonds? Um, and then the, the shareholder participation, how that's going to work. And uh, now we'll switch it up, and I will ask you some questions about Pemex. Does that sound good? Perfect. All right, let's do it. Um, okay, so we last talked about Pemex about six months ago um, in mid-May. So let's just walk through some of the key events um, that have occurred since then, sort of starting with the, the capital structure. Yeah, sure. So the company has exercised a few liability management transactions over the last few months, actually probably right around when we last spoke about it um, with the aim to to maintain a net debt of zero in real terms through 2024 uh, which is the end of the uh, the current president's uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador or AMLO uh, the end of his administration and this this plan was outlined in the business plan that was uh, released at the towards the beginning of the summer uh, so the first uh, leg of the of the transactions was in May, uh, where the company refinanced about $8 billion of syndicated loans. And then more recently in September, there were a few where uh, the company first announced it will receive it would receive about a $5 billion capital injunction from the federal government. And it then used those proceeds to fund a $5 billion, $5 billion of uh, for a cash tender offer for bonds maturing between 2020 and 2023, so a bunch of their near uh, near dated maturities, um, and then also concurrently with the cash tender offer, they announced an exchange offer where they exchanged about 7.6 billion dollars of debt maturing between 
uh, between 2022 and 2046 for new debt. Um, across three tranches, a uh, seven-year bond, a 10-year bond, and a 30-year bond. Um, so if, if I know the, uh, if you are looking at the capital structure and, and some of the more recent stories we've put out, it's it's kind of a beast, but it, the, the pro forma, uh, the pro forma columns kind of up, kind of, you know, illustrate the, those recent transactions. Um, but According to the company's presentation, and, and if you look at the, the capital structure, even after these liability man- management transactions, the, the company has close to nine, $19 billion of debt due uh, between 2020 and 2022. Um, and this, this figure is as of the company's latest earnings presentation, uh, so as of you know, the end of the third quarter. Wow, $19 billion. Okay, um, so I guess that brings me to the next question. Um, on June 6th, you had... Uh, a downgrade by Fitch. Um, what were the issues raised um, in in that in that downgrade, and how did the, that affect Pemex bond trading? Yeah, so Fitch flagged Pemex's weakened credit profile and under under investment in the the company's E and P business, which has you know bit long been highlighted as a as an issue for the company. Um, seeing a it's had production decline over 14 years in a row and and just kind of stabilized production over the last couple quarters um and also pemex's cash transfers to the government was was another red flag that fitch highlighted um as a result you know short around that time the the spread between the yield to maturity of pemex is 5.4 billion uh 6.5 percent 2027 bonds and the sovereigns 3.2 billion 4.15 bonds went from about 260 basis points uh, in May to about 317 basis points June 7th, right after that um, that downgrade happened, um, and the Pemex yields increased to about seven percent uh, from about six point two five percent before the um, before the downgrade got it so um, all right and then and then about a month later um, you had some more bad news uh, the the finance minister resigned and and he had some some pretty pointed criticism uh, of the government and why don't you walk us through that what happened there yeah so on July 10th the finance minister announced his resignation uh, he he was replaced by Arturo Herrera Gutierrez, uh, and the um, the former finance minister uh, Carlos Orzua, uh, his letter raised questions about the president's appointment of other key members of his administration, who uh, who he called inexperienced, and he also argued uh, this is the former minister Orzua argued that um, some economic policy decisions by AMLO's administration were were not made based on evidence and data and rather were and were not free of extremism. Got it. And so you said you said earlier that uh, the investment um, from the Mexican government helped fund the the Pemex tender and you know obviously that signals Mexico's commitment to the company whose debt um, which is you know a little over 100 billion is is around 8 to 9% of Mexico's G- 2018 GDP um, and you know I, I think that that's 
it's not surprising that the government would want to uh, support the company, given that the the, ta- the the LTM taxes and duties that have been paid to Mexico um, have amounted to around twenty one billion, or around two percent of Mexico's GDP, which you know, as as many of you know, is really not growing or has not been growing. Um, so you know, obviously, Pemex is a very strategically important asset for the for the sovereign. Um, so, aside from the capital injection, um, what else has Mexico done to support the company? Yeah, so on July 16th, uh, Pemex, Pemex's new CEO, who was appointed by, uh, by AMLO, uh, his name is Octo- Octavio Romero Oropesa, uh, he said that the government, the Mexican government would cut the oil, uh, cut the company's profit sharing duty, which is known as the DUC, from 54% to, or I'm sorry, from 65% to 54%, uh, so that essentially the Pemex would would retain more more cash and give, you know, pay less to the government. Um, Pemex is 20F for, from 2018 explains that the profit sharing duty is calculated based off of the value of hydrocarbons produced in the area, uh, less permitted deductions. Uh, so in, in 2018 for every one Mexican peso of EBITDA that the company generated. Um, the company spent about 85 cents on taxes and duty payments. So, you know, a large percentage of their profits are going to the government. Uh, the 2020 Mexican gov- government budget proposal calls for about $4.4 billion, uh, that's US dollars, of additional funding, uh, with 53%, about 53% coming from the federal expense budget and the rest coming from a tax cut for extraction and production. Okay, got it. So you've had you've had uh, quite a bit of support um, for for the company over the past year, and, and it seems like um, when 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 that announcement was made, or at least the second one, I think they think um, the bonds uh, reacted to that in a in a positive way. So it looks like the market um, was looking for that support. Um, but so, what was your big takeaway from from earnings at, at the end of October? Uh, I, I'd say that, so. On the call, CFO Alberto Velasquez said that the capitalization from the federal government of would be a little more than three billion, and that a good portion of these proceeds would go towards building the new Dos Bocas oil refinery. Uh, Pemex has so far paid about twenty percent of the budgeted uh, fifty. 50 billion pesos allocated to be or projected to be spent on the refinery. Uh, in July, uh, six contracts amounting to about $7.5 billion uh, were awarded to uh, a few, some uh, six different companies uh, Floor Enterprises, ICA Floor, uh, Samsung Engineering, Asociados, Constructores. Um, Kellogg Brown and Root, and also Constructora Osto Tipacio. Um, so, so I think we'll we'll be keeping an eye on the development of this refinery because uh, it's it's um, you know it, the company is cle- clearly clearly uh, committed to it, and um, it's obviously gonna gonna take up um, a, you know a solid portion of their uh, capital expenditures outside of their uh, their EMP segment. Uh, so, so with that, uh, that's pretty much a wrap on Pemex, and, and I'll flip the script again uh, back to you, Kyle, and we'll talk about our talk about our most stressed name of this segment, uh, Intercement. 
uh, can you walk us through the, the capital structure um, and and just uh, yeah give us some detail on that? Yeah, sure. So um, InterCement, you have around 1.7 billion euros of total debt, uh, roughly 630 million at the OPCO level, around 600 million um, at the Holds Co level, and that's excluding um, roughly 480 million of, of senior notes um, due uh, in, in 2024. Uh, total leverage is around six turns. Awesome, and, and can you lay out the structure for us? Are the, uh, the other bonds issued by the parent company at the top? Um, no, so the bonds were issued by a company called Simpor Financial Operations that's incorporated in the Netherlands. And based on the prospectus, which is admittedly a little dated given that it's from 2014, but sort of the best source that we have, um, Intercement Participasois, uh, the parent company guarantor, owns Intercement Austria Holding. And the issuer, Simpor Financial Operations, is a subsidiary of InterCement Austria Holding, and there are no boxes that sit beneath the issuer. Uh, rather, the intermediate opcos and opcos uh, sit beneath a, a Spanish registered company called Simpor Trading and Investment. And the bonds are guaranteed, sorry, by uh, InterCement Participasois and InterCement Brazil, um, a subsidiary that's listed in the company's Brazil segment in the annual report and distinguished from the holdings and business and corporate support companies like Simpor Trading and Investments and Simpor Financial Operations. And so I just point that out just to say that I, th- I think that it's 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 fair to assume that the bonds are guaranteed by uh, InterCement Participações, the parent co, and then uh, Brazil, which seems like an opco or an intermediate opco of sorts, not necessarily um, one of the sort of holding companies or support companies. Got it. So, you, so you mentioned uh, Intercement Participações uh, as one of the guarantors. Who owns that entity? Yeah. So Intercement's shareholder, uh, the company's called Mover, um, and it was formerly known as Camargo Correa. In 2015, Camargo Correa signed a, a leniency agreement with federal authorities in connection with Lava Jato, and uh, since then changed its name to to Mover. Um, the the parent company, and by the parent company, I mean Camargo. Camargo's assets uh, include a. Uh, roughly 15% economic interest in Brazilian highway and uh, subway operator CCR. Um, And then uh, the portfolio also includes a Brazilian real estate management company, CCDI, um, Atlantico uh, Sul Shipyard, which Mover actually owns with Carlos Gaval, Reorg covers another Carlos Gaval company, and uh, a business operations provider called Vecia. Um, so a, 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 a disparate um, group, well, somewhat disparate, I should say, group of businesses in the, in the Camargo Correa portfolio. Um, interestingly, the prospectus talks about um, the the debentures due April 2022 and August 2022 um, that carry interest at CDI plus 115% and secured by shares of CCC Lux, uh, which is, is a subsidiary of Camargo Correa. Um, in the company's 2013 annual report, 
the debentures are laid out in a, in a manner that's very similar to the way they're presented in the most recent 2018 annual report. And there's a footnote in that 2013 annual report saying that the debentures that mature um, in April 2022 are guaranteed um, by Intercement Participasois controlling shareholders, meaning Camargo. Um, so I, I'm, I'm operating under the assumption that the companies, uh, at least the company's debentures outstanding due April 2022, benefit from a guarantee uh, from Camargo. Um, last year, or around the end of last year, um, local debenture holders, when uh, Intercement's covenant was tested, agreed to increase um, the net leverage threshold from four and a half times to five and a half times. This wasn't the first time that happened. It also took place in 2016, which signals um, somewhat of a willingness uh, to support the company. Um, around that time last year, when the debenture holders agreed to do that, um, the Intercement shareholders, so some again, Camargo, now Mover, agreed uh, to make a 67 million euro equity contribution support um, in order to, quote, strengthen the company's balance sheet. So I think the interplay between um, Camargo and the debentures and support coming down for the company is all um, has all been pretty interesting and may continue to be interesting going forward, depending on how this plays out. Yeah, awesome. That's, that's uh, some really good color. So as we noted at the, at the top of the segment, the bonds have, have cracked pretty much, uh, or at least slightly. Uh, so what's happened uh, and what's the market pricing in? Yeah, so this has happened before, actually. In, in September 2018, we wrote a piece about how the company's bonds were trading in the mid-70s on Brazil and Argentina currency pressure, uh, even as the company was actually receiving proposals for asset sales. So I think that was our lead. Uh, you know, we, we we said that the company was receiving proposals for asset sales, and um, and yet the bonds the bonds were were trading uh, in, in at that discounted level. Um, over time, the bonds rallied back to the mid nineties as the company announced asset sales. Um, but more recently, Alberto Fernandez won the primaries. Um, or sorry, more recently, when Alberto Fernandez won the primaries, the market uh, began to sell off. So so this is a Brazil company with exposure in Argentina, right? Uh, so how much exposure does the company have to Ar- with to Argentina? Uh, does it operate anywhere else? Yeah, so um, latest 12 months, second quarter 2019, the, the sales volume mix uh, was 40.40% Brazil, 31% Argentina, and around um, 30% um uh, sorry, Africa, which is which which comprises Egypt, Mozambique, and South Africa. The company used to break that out, um, but but now they've grouped it all together. Um, the Argentine business, represented by Loma Negra, uh, made up around thirty percent of Intercement's twenty eighteen EBITDA. Although whether or not that's going to be the rate going forward is is it's sort of remains to be seen because the Brazil EBITDA is a little bit depressed um, coming coming from this 2016 recession. Um, but um, regardless, Intercement has, is, is, has continued and, and will continue to invest um, in Argentina, specifically on um, the La Mali uh, cement project. In 2017, about 50% of Intercement's total CapEx was directed toward our, towards Argentina. And in 2018, this number reached almost 55%. Um, 
in 2017, InterCement IPO'd around 48% of the Loma Negra share capital, uh, and now the InterCement Group owns the rest of Loma Negra through um, an intermediate holding company within the InterCement Group. Um, there are around 596 million uh, shares outstanding, and the the market cap is around 3.4 billion. Um, so that represents around 1.7 billion of value for InterCement. Got it. And and lastly, how does uh, liquidity look for InterCement? The company burned about 200 million euros of cash in 2018, and LTM cash burn was around 195 million euros as of second quarter uh, 2019. Cash and cash equivalents and securities on the balance sheet were around 275 million euros at the end of June 30th. So liquidity is a little tight. Uh, there were... Um, as of the the second quarter 2019 presentation, a little over one billion coming due ahead of the bonds due 2024. Um, 380 million of that are the debentures that I discussed due in 2022. Um, so you don't have any near term um, sort of large chunky international bond maturities, um, but you do you do sort of start to run in you could start to run into some issues if the company struggles to roll those maturities um and then again um somewhat related to the liquidity picture you've got uh, a five and a half times leverage covenant that's going to be tested at the end of the year got it thank you uh that's uh, a lot of interesting stuff on this segment and i think that's pretty much a wrap so thank you everyone thank you thanks a lot kyle and thank you listener for tuning into another reorg weekly review as always, find all of our podcasts on the Reorg site media page or iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding. <laughs>